no fear of perfection. You'll never reach it. A quote from Salvador Dali. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Unfounded Podcast. I'm going to start out these episodes with the quotes, just like I did right there. I want to kind of eliminate some of the talking in the beginning, because I think it's a little redundant, at least at this point. So without further ado, let's get right into it. I want to check in on you guys. How you doing? How is Sober October doing and going for you? Well, for me, uh, overall, it's going really well, but I definitely have had some slip-ups. We ended the last episode talking about the way, the path, a certain mode of being, and trying to figure out how to see that path. Because it's obscured, usually. The path, the way it's talked about in most religions around the world. What I believe the path and the way is, is something like... The reason it's so hard to define is because it's different for each individual. It's very individual. Something that resides inside of you at a very deep level. Below the physical. It's a more spiritual level. The way is your way. It's individualistic. Have no fear of perfection, you'll never reach it. Now, I want to bring that quote in today because, like I said, I've had some stumblings already. What is this? Four days in to sober October. And the reason I want to read this, this quote stood out to me in my head. I was, I posted this quite a while back. I think this was, yeah, May 16th. This was quite a while back. I posted this uh, quote on my Facebook. Um, but it popped in my head as soon as I started thinking about what I wanted to talk about on this podcast. Because I've been thinking that I want to check in with you guys. I want to be there uh, and help you guys go through this process as well as I'm going through it. And one of the ways to do that, I think, is to is to demonstrate this right here that nobody is perfect. And that I think one of the messages that is needed right now, if you're out there and you're going through this as well, maybe you're going through this, this sober October for the first time is not a message of perfection. It's not a message of harshness. It's not a message of expect of holding yourself to an unreasonable expectation. What it is is an understanding of the fallible nature of you. That even when you set out an intention, you're very bad at making that intention a reality. We all are. And the reason we're bad at making that intention a reality is because we're not put together well. It's our fault. That we can practice that process of making our intentions a reality. And the way to practice that that process, oddly enough, is to recognize how fallible you are. Because then you can see why you're not making your intentions a reality. Oftentimes what I find people do, let's take Sober October for an example, is they'll bite off more than they can chew. And that's what I've been guilty of this time. I kind of (laughs) hinted at it early in the episode before we started Sober October there that I have a tendency to bite off more than I can chew. Guess what I did this time? Same thing. 
Now let me explain again what I'm trying to give up here, and it's quite a bit. It's, every time I go over to my head, I'm like, Chris, geez, dude, like you don't need to eliminate everything under the sun. But I, and my initial intention with Sober October was to eliminate nicotine entirely, right? It was to eliminate caffeine entirely. It was to eliminate bad food entirely, bad content entirely. What, I, what do I mean by bad content? Well, I mean by content, uh, if you listen to Rogan or any of uh, those kind of uh, intellectual uh, people on the on the intellectual web, you'll find that there's this this tendency for them to talk about, or at least Joe specifically talks about uh, bandwidth, right? That what you devote your time to, or what you devote your attention to, is kind of what you internalize and become. And that's what I mean by content is like be careful what you're watching, what you're consuming in forms of information, right? I don't want to be consuming information that is uh, leading me astray, for lack of a better word, right? So content as well, um, giving up weed giving up alcohol, right? Essentially everything I could think of uh, that I didn't want to incorporate into myself. Now, let me give you an update on where I'm at. I'm doing very good on the alcohol, the weed, the content, the food. I'm struggling with the nicotine. (laughs) Have no fear of perfection and you'll never reach it. Now, that's not meant to discourage anybody out there. It's meant to make you feel human. Perfection is an idea, it's not a reality. The only thing we can associate with perfection is something like God. Oftentimes what we'll do is confuse ourselves with the thing that's capable of being perfect. And we hold ourselves to that standard. And when we don't hit that standard, we collapse. And this is the reason I'm bringing it up. Just because you stumble just because you're not perfect doesn't mean you give up. Get what I'm saying? Have no fear of perfection, you'll never reach it. Instead, what we can do is look at those failings, whatever they are. For me, let's say the nicotine aspect of it as well, right? And the caffeine, actually, let me, to be completely transparent, I've kind of adjusted (laughs) as I've been going through this, uh, instead of eliminating all caffeine, I've decided that I'm going to eliminate just energy drinks. Why? Well, because the energy drinks is really what I have a problem with, right? That's what I have a hard time getting away from. Um, the caffeine itself, I think is useful in very specific circumstances. Uh, I enjoy it in terms of a, uh, when I'm doing the podcast, for instance, it helps me kind of put thoughts together. Or when I'm working out, it helps me give it the energy so I can kind of put my all into it, if that makes sense, right? And I think those are positive things. So my initial ass- assessment was that caffeine bad, eliminate it. Um, I kind of realized as I started to do that, that I didn't want to do that. Does that make sense? That it wasn't actually what I wanted? And then with nicotine, it's a different kind of monster because it's a hook that I've been having a hard time getting away from. And, but what I have done is kept myself from going back to cigarettes, from going back to, uh, vaping, from going back to dipping, from going back to the things that I have been addicted to in the past. And what I have used, uh, in place of that is, is like a swisher, right? A cigar or something. Now I'm not condoning that. I'm not saying that's okay that I failed there. But what I am saying is that because I failed doesn't mean I'm a total failure, right? Because I didn't succeed in that one aspect of this sober October, it doesn't mean I'm going to give up on the alcohol and the weed and the food and the content, all those areas where I'm having significant victories and I'm continuing to gain strength in, right? 
I hope this resonates with you as well. I hope that if you're joining me on this, that you didn't make any of those mistakes that I have made uh, thus far, that you are sitting in that perfect space where you want to be. I don't want to doubt anybody out there that maybe hasn't done that. Kudos to you. That's a significant achievement. And if you are sitting here and you've achieved everything you set out to achieve already in the first four days, continue to do that. Know, though, that if you do have a moment of weakness and you do slip up, it doesn't mean you start back over. It means you continue. It means you're fallible. And there's something very humbling and something necessary in that message. That we are all fallible. That even when we intend to do something, we very very often we fail to get to that place of intention. We allow ourselves to stray. And then allowing ourselves to give up on our intention is really what makes us fail. When you allow yourselves to give up on the intention because you're discouraged by the lack of directness towards it, if that makes sense. And I hope I'm not speaking too vaguely for anybody. I also want to broaden. So that's where I'm at, guys, checking in, right? That's where I'm at with Sober October. I'm still raring to go. And I'm feeling energy. I don't know if you guys are as well, but the first couple of days are usually the hardest, right? First couple of days are usually when you're trying to give something up or you're trying to you're trying to walk the path the way that we've been talking about, right? Those first couple of days uh, are going to be brutal because that's when you're really breaking the habit, when you're seeing how much of a habit you've created, when you're seeing how much of a, a strain or a drain or maybe how much you've relied on something else. Those first couple of days is when it's going to hurt the most. And I definitely silenced that. I don't know why it went off. It's when it's going to hurt the most, folks. And I'm sure if you're going with me on this journey, you've experienced that thus far. But what I've noticed, and I don't know if you resonate with this as well, but the third and fourth day, fifth day, it starts to get slightly easier. Because what happens is instead of feeling like you're in a place of loss, as you do in those first couple of days, like you're losing something, on the third, fourth, and fifth day and onward, what you start to feel is the slightest sense of accomplishment. Maybe minuscule, hair thin, but it's there and you start to notice it. It's a certain type of confidence, a certain type of strength, it's a certain type of respect for yourself that you are going, walking the path. <laughs> or at the very least attempting to. And there's something noble and heroic about that. That archetype we've talked about before, right? You can start feeling yourself in the place of the hero archetype on the third and the fourth and the fifth day. And I promise you, if you continue with me, if you continue to push yourself, you're going to feel that archetype grow inside of you as we continue on this journey. Uh, Last thing I'll say on Sober October, because I don't want to devote too much of the show just to sobriety, (laughs) Uh, is uh, for a second there, I was kind of concerned because uh, Rogan wasn't actually doing Sober October or wasn't talking about it on his new podcast. And I assumed it was something to do with the movies had and stuff like that. But I was hoping, because he's kind of been the person that's uh, been the figurehead of this every year, at least in my world and most people's world, I think, uh, I was hoping he would be joining in and kind of a guiding light for me and others as well. Uh, initially, he, he 
was kind of quiet on the subject, but just recently, a couple days ago, he came out saying Sober October is on, folks. And it was interesting also uh, watching a video he posted uh, talking about why there was a delay in his decision to participate in Sober October. And the reason was because uh, the friends that he usually does this with, Perk Kreischer and I forget the other guy's names, Ari Shafir, and I believe it's, uh, I can't remember the last guy's name. Anyway, I think you guys know them. Uh, those guys decided they didn't want to do it this year. And the reasons they decided for not wanting to participate in Sober October I thought were so revealing. They said it's just too much going on in the world right now. There's too much chaos in the world to be able to forego the substances that give us comfort. <laughs> That's a paraphrase, of course. Isn't that funny? Because in that response, you see how tied and reliant people are on those substances exactly. They treat them as a security blanket. That even though they're not going to be giving these substances up forever, even the thought of not having them for 30 days is too much to handle. That's a form of mental weakness, folks. It's a form of mental weakness you can train out of yourself. And maybe you're resonating with that message right now, right? Maybe that was something that resonated with you and you're like, you know, it's just too much. That's okay. I'm not trying to criticize you, right? I'm just pointing it out for what it is. Don't lie to yourself. You don't need those substances. You don't need anything. What the purpose of Sober October is to demonstrate that fact to you. Because if you don't constantly demonstrate that fact to yourself, well, the place you will end up is something like you will become a slave to the things that you crave. You become unfree. There's a lack of freedom and desire. And the only way to avoid that lack of freedom is to demonstrate to yourself on a constant basis that you're the thing that decides and you're the thing that chooses, not things outside of you. That's all fine to dandy like, it, dandy, like I said, the application of it is much more difficult. Hence the struggles I've been covering thus far, right? But have no per fear of perfection because you'll never reach it. Now I want to dive a little bit more into that and kind of apply it to the... the society at large, right? Try to see what we can pull out of this quote and apply it on a larger scale. Let's talk a little bit about Salvador Dali. I'm not a huge follower of Salvador Dali, it's, uh, but I know I'm familiar with some of his artwork. He's a very famous artist, right? Um, and I have some of his artwork pulled up here, and it's very interesting. Um, abstract type art, right? Um, re one thing that's odd in Salvador Dali's work is you can see, recognize certain, it's not so abstract, it's not like Picasso, right? It's not, it's not so abstract that you can't recognize what that is, right? The landscapes he uses, the settings he places his images in, on the surface seem accurate. But then within his paintings, you see this What's the right word? Something like... It's something malleable, I guess, is the best way to put it. You'll find images. Like, for instance, one that I'm looking at right now is kind of an image of a, a landscape with a, a desk and a tree growing out of the desk. And then hanging off of the tree branch and off of the desk and off of what looks to be maybe a representation of an animal of some sort is a is clocks 
these clocks are drooping. They're 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 soft and kind of formless in a way. And so you see this mixing of the the tangible, the physical, the objective, real with this imaginative, creative, abstract quality. And I find that fascinating because of that almost balance you see in it, if that makes sense. A balance between the lunacy and the psychopathy that can kind of pop up within the human mind and what looks like an objective reality. Now, why would somebody like Salvador Dali be famous for a quote, like, have no fear of perfection, you'll never reach it? Well, it speaks to, (laughs) in some ways, Salvador Dali's motivation. The only way you teach that lesson to yourself is to try to be perfect, (laughs) right? How else do you learn a lesson that deep and profound? I believe by trying to achieve perfection. And looking in his artwork, you'll see there's this acceptance of that. And I don't know, like I said, a lot about Salvador Dali, but you can see in his artwork that there's this comfortability with playing with the world and it and 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 it's and the objective qualities we like to overlay on the world it's like a breaking down of your perception is what salvador dali seems to be trying to do in his artwork and and there's and i believe that's why it's so it resounds with people so much because it draws you in it it, it sparks your imagination and makes you wonder if there's something more than this thing we see in front of us That's a deeply spiritual message. And I believe most artists are deeply spiritually connected. Not that there can't be secular artists, but that where art comes from is something like spirit. That's where it comes from. Oh, this is interesting. Sorry for the pause there, guys. There's this one image I'm looking at right now. It's by Salvador Dali. It's The Temptation of St. Anthony, if you're curious and want to follow along. But it's kind of mesmerizing looking at this painting. It's a it's a very barren landscape. And then a series of animals, elephants and horses, with monuments on their back. Holy places, things like that. Towers. It looks like the Tower of Babel maybe in the background. There's some some kind of religious context here. And but the animals are on like stilts. Their legs are long, almost disturbingly long. And you see at the very corner, bottom corner of this painting, uh, what I'm assuming is St. Anthony holding a crucifix towards these animals who appear to be coming towards him and ready to stomp him, stomple him. I don't know if it's a word stomple. You get my meaning. Trample, I think is what I was going for. <laughs> What, I've, what I'm getting out of this painting as I look at it is there's some kind of message here. It's something like the monuments we built. If raised to unreasonable heights, crush humanity. It's a beautiful message, right? <laughs> and profound. And I think this is partially why Salvador Dali is such a renowned artist. Because there's some depth in his artwork. 
But I want to pull back onto the quote, have no fear of perfection, you'll never reach it. The comfortability with his artwork to demonstrate that this this objective reality idea, this this idea that there's something that's we can all see and agree upon doesn't exist. That he... That oftentimes, what crushes us is our search for perfection. Not the search for perfection, but the expectation of perfection in yourself. The expectation of perfection in yourself is something akin to aligning yourself with a far greater being. Something like the idea of God, right? As we talked about before. Because perfect isn't achievable objectively. You can you can see that. Maybe that is one of the only objective truths is that perfection is not achievable. But that there is something to the striving for perfection. It's a very delicate balance. <laughs> right? How do I how do I strive for perfect without expecting to be perfect? Isn't that that's a that's a hard distinction to make? I think the reason perfection is impossible is because anytime you would feel the feeling perfect when you look at something or you hear something or you hear a song, you're like, God, that's perfect. Or that food is like, God, that tastes perfect, right? You could take that song or that plate of food and give it to somebody else and or everybody on the planet and they're not all going to agree that that's perfect. So what that speaks of is something like a subjective perfection. That perfection is subjective, it's not objective. There is no objective perfection. So that if you're striving to be perfect, if you're striving for that perfection, the road to finding it is internal, not external. That you can't find the map by looking into the world. The only way you find the map is looking internally, like following the guideposts that you have deep down. Something like an internal voice, something, the things that make you different is what makes you perfect. Does that make sense? And beautiful. Then embracing imperfection is a very liberal idea, a very classical liberal idea, that not imperfection, that embracing of individuality is what I mean. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. Embracing of individuality is a, is a very liberal concept, a very classical liberal concept, like I was saying. Which is what's confusing about the modern political landscape when you try to apply this. I believe that one of the things that's happened in our politics is we have gotten confused on a grand scale. I do believe that there's a differentiation between the left and the right in this country right now. And one of those differentiations is this. It lies in expectation. What I see coming from at least the more extreme left, I guess is the best way to call it, is an expectation of perfection. I think there's a reason why that left believes that perfection is achievable. This idea is not new either. 
that if you look throughout history, especially in Eastern Europe, in and let's say China, if you look at, at the Communist Party, if you look at the Marxist Manifesto, there is this idea of being able to bring in a new world, a perfect world. A system of in which suffering and chaos never exists again. That we as human beings have the ability to see objective perfection. And that because and so we strive for it politically. But what the most the most revealing thing about that is 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 if if you treat those ideas and in their application as kind of a case study into the existence of objective perfection, what you'll find is that there is no evidence that it exists. Not only is there no evidence that it exists, the striving for an objective perfection within a large group of people, within a polity, is exactly what creates the kind of suffering we are trying to eliminate. Oddly enough, Because when we hold something like perfection to be true and achievable in the physical reality, and we do that in a large enough group, what we create is something like a psychosis because it's disconnected from the truth, from the truth that your subjective reality is what's real, that you as an individual are completely real <laughs> and completely unique and completely true, but you have to accept and find that truth. The only way to find that truth is to eliminate the external things that influence you, that tell you that there's some kind of external truth that you need to follow. That it doesn't come from you, it comes from somebody else or some, some other thing. Or that the reason that the world isn't perfect isn't because of you or your group, it's because of some other group, right? You see this tendency to place blame outside of, uh, of, of the individual or the group. I believe this stems from the idea, the belief that perfection is achievable. I believe this is one of the reasons why I think this is one of the reasons why there's a disconnect between the left and the right and their view of somebody like let's say Donald Trump. I I believe like why there's such a confusion behind like the evangelical community's support for a person like Donald Trump, especially when the secular community views from an external place replies what they believe the evangelical community espouses when they project that you you expect something like a moral thing right like they're, they're, that 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 if the evangelical community was going to vote or support somebody uh, like a president that they'd be expecting something like um, somebody who would embody the traits and qualities of let's say like Jesus the savior right I think it's a reasonable perspective to take from an external place, right? But one thing it misses is that, at least from my understanding of the Western religions and the teachings of Jesus Christ himself, right, there is no... You'll find if you read the Bible that there's plenty of people that are completely and utterly fallible, that many of the stories that you see in the New Testament, at least, uh, in regards to Jesus Christ is, is him demonstrating to people the fact that people are not perfect objectively. 
showing love and compassion to even the most outcast in our society, right? How do you do that if you believe that people should be perfect? You can't. This is why I believe the evangelical community and the more religious community has embraced Donald Trump. Because regardless of his flaws on the surface, one thing that he does do is embody something like a subjective truth. And I, I think that's something that I've realized recently. And I'm wondering if people aren't all realizing this at the same time. There's something, there's, there's, there's something like an appreciation for the fallible nature of that man. Something like the things he says and the things he does being so drastic that they couldn't be fake. You get what I'm saying? Something like an open book, I believe, is what the evangelical evangelical community and the faith-based community in general sees in that man. One of the ways that people try to institute perfection in the world is by segmenting it. I believe the reason why the search for perfection devolves into chaos, suffering, and death always. Not the search for it, the expectation of perfection, I guess, is a more accurate way to describe it. The reason it always devolves is because of the way the ideas progress. Let me give an example, right? So let's say you hold perfection as an achievable external reality. Well, in order for perfection to exist externally, everybody has to agree on the same conception of perfect, right? Because you can't have like even one or two people not agreeing with this, that, that idea. Otherwise, there's chaos there, right? That's imperfect. So there's this necessity in the idea itself to have totality. (laughs) Totalitarian. I think that's one of the reasons that word exists politically. Because the way you get a totalitarian is to inspire inside a certain individual or group something like an expectation of perfection. And then in in the application of that expectation of perfection... um, There's blowback. There's reaction from all of the people that don't agree with that perception or don't agree with something within that viewpoint. And because of that, the existence of these people, the the person in power, the group in power who holds expectation or perfection to be a reality views those people as something like a cancer or a, at the very least, a menace. And I, I, I believe the reason why totalitarianism comes into being a lot of times is because when argumentation or um, the providing of facts fails to pull those people over to this idea, to, a, to their side, quotation marks, um, the only next step is to control, is to segment 
And the way we feel segmentation control like that practically, as we've all experienced through COVID, uh, is something like suffering. It's a lack of freedom. It's a lack of individuality. It's kind of the, the, uh, the intentional holding down of subjective reality in the search for an objective one. And through that process, the worst atrocities in human's existence occur, in humanity's existence occur. That's why we have to be so careful with this idea of perfection. Should you strive for something like a perfection in yourself? Sure. Does that idea of what perfection is need to match up with the entire world? Absolutely not. It should be something very individual to you. And there should also be, this is the most important part, a recognition that you're never going to be that. And that other people are not going to agree with you on that, on what perfection looks like. And that there has to be an acceptance of that imperfect nature, that quality that exists within life itself, the imperfection within life itself, that you have to love that, learn to love that, see it for what it is. I believe one of the ways you cultivate this process is by doing things like Sober October, right? By challenging yourself, by, by choosing the thorny path, by demonstrating to yourself how fallible you are and how incomplete you are. And how even when you put your intent out with all of your emotion, being, and will, you're still going to fail. But that the thing that sets you apart and makes you different is... Your ability to handle the failure, <laughs> right? How do you respond when you recognize you're not perfect? What do you do? Do you take it out on the world? Or do you recognize you're the thing that is imperfect? I think we need a big dose of that right now. <laughs> Don't you? The reason I bring up this in the context of the extreme left is because that's what I felt inside of myself as a member of that political grouping. That when I was fully enthralled in that ideology, one of the things I expected was that I would constantly argue for the idea that there is a way we can make this way, this world perfect. I would argue for it. And there's an easy route to argue for it. It's usually something like a... Uh, it's an odd perversion of the individuality within liberalism. It's something like people can't help themselves we need to help them right that there's a lot of people out there that can't help themselves that the world itself is too harsh that these people are somehow cast out of it or they have an inability to deal with the chaos within it whatever it is but there's this idea that there's certain people in this world that either don't see truth don't have an ability to distill it or could never achieve a place in society where they would be stable and so what that idea does if you accept that as truth, then the only way you solve it is to fix those people, right? And is to, to 
look for levers of action in which you can affect those people's lives. And when you try to see that from a top-down perspective, when you try to work that out in your head, the e- the most readily, the most obviously available way to affect other individuals' lives is politically through government control, through power. If you look, if you look at it on the surface. That's what most people believe, I think, at least modern day, especially on the left, <laughs> is that the way you make change in this world, you've heard this before, change, 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 right? The way you make change in this world is by voting the right person in, by having the right grouping, political grouping in positions of power, by switching out the old systems of power that have been in place and by pr- putting in new blood, people that have, uh, that are a little close, closer to perfect, <laughs> Right? And that through that kind of taking over of systems and the downward, tr- which is odd because it's kind of a trickle-down concept, <laughs> which is economically something that the left hates to talk about but um, or likes to refute, but is also argued for, I think, in some ways, um, inovertly. It's also why one of the more conservative arguments I agree with, I think holds true, that government has a tendency to grow, and this is one of the reasons why governments have a tendency to grow, is because there is a large faction of people that hold perfection as achievable and view the only means of achieving that perfection. um, Or actually, it's even deeper than that, that we have actually trained and taught people in schools for close to a century now, if not, maybe not that long, but short, there's this certain ideology that is taught in the schools when you go through it, that you can achieve this perfection, that the way you achieve perfection is by being an activist, by going out and getting involved, right? By, by, by taking positions of power, by developing yourself to a point where you can convince other people that you're right. And that one of the levers of making that happen is by Creating programs, right? Creating points of relief through which the government can act directly in your life. One of the funniest things about that is this is why there's a tendency for government to grow. Because that idea is fundamentally wrong and has been proven fundamentally wrong that you can't affect people externally that way. It's one of the, re- it's one of the reasons why people are frustrating is they don't listen to you. <laughs> or even if you're giving them help, they don't take it. Or if they take it, they take advantage of it. All of these myriad of possibilities springs out of the human being because we're not the same thing. But if you don't view the previous programs that have come before us, let's say all of the different social programs that we've enacted in the United States government up until this point, those were all done under the same premise, right? That the way that we fix people's problems, say poverty or um, homelessness, right, is by creating a program in which people can be lifted up. Well, we've done that, have we not? Quite a bit. But that one of the things you'll notice is most people don't... (laughs) Those programs don't lift people up. They tend, they, they, from what I can tell, it's more like those programs pacify people. And that pacification, that comfort actually kills the thing inside of them, the individuality inside of them that would create true organic growth in that individual. But if you don't realize that, then the problem isn't 
fundamental like that. It's not an individuality problem, right? It's a bit. It's a. It's a problem with the program itself. It's a problem with the specificity of the program. And so, what we need more growing out of that idea is more programs. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? There's just not enough, or the right type of programs, the right type of government help. There. And one of the ways this is argued for is through this bleeding heart type of perspective. That all these people need help, and they're also helpless. And the way we help them is by instituting the right programs and ideas. That's wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. It's been proven wrong over and over. Yet it's still on the ballot. <laughs> and I know this has been fairly political as well. I think it's fairly unavoidable at this point, guys. The world is very chaotic. We've been telling you it's coming for a while, right? I'm sure you have felt it as well. I think it's something we can all feel and see objectively. That's odd, right? Objective reality. Maybe there is an objective reality. I don't know. This is why it's such a fundamental question. Why it's such a hard question. And there isn't, actually, because there'd be somebody that disagreed with me, so no. <laughs> anyway, tangent, right? We have to figure out a way as a society to preach the message that you need to hold yourself to accountable, that you need to be responsible, that you need not just external responsibilities, that there's a deeper fundamental responsibility. It's something like you have to figure out what and who you are and what you're capable of. You also have to figure out how you're completely and utterly flawed. And that what produces the most beauty in the world is people that identify that balance, that embody that balance inside of themselves. Going back to Salvador Dali, when you look at his artwork, I hope you do, and I'll try to post links to some of them so for you on my on my on my Facebook, so you can actually look at these. But there's something about these paintings when you look at them that is attractive, and I think the reason about them that the reason they're attractive is because of the balance you see in them. This balance of the real and the ephemeral or the, the I don't know if that's the right word, ephemeral, the, the real and the, the, the balance between objective reality and subjective reality. This comfort with molding and playing with the world, right? The only way you feel comfortable to do that is to feel comfortable with yourself, I think. So I hope if you're out there and you've been joining me on this on this sober October thus far that you're not getting discouraged. I hope that you're feeling that little slightest bit of encouragement. I hope you feel and know that you are embodying the hero the hero archetype. I hope you recognize and respect yourself for making that choice. I also hope you recognize how fallible you are. And that you find a way to hold yourself accountable while also recognizing that you will never be perfect. Does that make sense? But that there's something about striving for your own subjective perfection that creates inside of the individual that embraces that challenge something like beauty, something like art, something like majesty. True individuality 
true liberalism. I believe what we need is something like a reinvention of the American dream. That we need a common vision, but that that vision is toughy and tr- is tough and tricky to implement because all everything I've said thus far is still true. That there is no objective reality. So when we're trying to create a common vision, it has to be something like everybody's different. Preach how different you are. I mean, that's what I see when I look at the founding documents, folks. I see a bunch of very fallible men making a decision to enshrine in law that idea. To embrace individuality at a government level. And to recognize that the search for that individuality comes through spiritual conquest, through God-given rights. I know I try to steer away from speaking about God in those terms. And the reason I do that is because I don't want to turn anybody off to the message I'm trying to bring here. But that I don't know if you put together up until this point that where I'm getting all of this where this philosophy comes from is from religion. That I believe the reason that you have God created under God, all men are created under God in the Declaration of Independence is because those ideas, the philosophy that all men are equal is some spraying out of religious context. That it is a religious and spiritual idea. That the way you experience True perfection, I guess, is through expressing your own individuality unfiltered. To hone your own individuality. And that that bet has paid off. And that that is the reason why we have experienced this upward expansion in the Western world. That's the reason there is a term, the Western world. And one of the ways we've gone astray here, one of the many ways we've gone astray, I think the most fundamental way we've gone astray is to try to delete God's place in this. Now, when I say God, you can change it for the universe if you want. I'm not trying to argue for the existence of God. I'm trying to demonstrate to you that regardless of what you believe in, that The ideas associated with religions, the philosophies that come from those religions, are what make the foundation for the entire Western world, for the expansion that we've seen, and actually, oddly enough, for the ability for something like a secular worldview to come into being, period. (laughs) That there wouldn't be a secularism if there wasn't a religion first. Nietzsche argued for this as well. When he argued that God was dead, he wasn't arguing from a secular perspective. He was arguing in a time frame where the secular perspective was coming into being. He was witnessing it being birthed. And he was identifying that what that perspective was doing was killing off the idea of God fundamentally. And that once we did that, once we killed off the idea of God, period, we would have no guiding light. That the philosophies we based all of our governments on would slowly crumble. Because the guiding light, the reason it's there... Is, was we delete it and hid from ourselves. Do you get it? 
and that those ideas require maintenance not the kind of not not like structural maintenance it's individual maintenance that people themselves have to understand why those ideas are there and the necessity and responsibility for themselves to develop themselves right or else the system doesn't work because people don't operate as if it's true. The only way a system like that is true is if people believe and hold it to be true. I believe that what's happened in the political scene, at least over the last four years, is a destruction of that idea, is the culmination of, of a, a very slow degradation in those ideas. And this is partially why the United States itself as a thing is being painted as something evil, as something fundamentally flawed, as something fu misogynistic and, and, uh, and something rife with, with control from masculinity and the patriarchy and something seeping and oozing with the, 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 the pus of slavery and, 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 and subjugation. That's what you get. It's the only thing... When you delete the thing that makes it good, <laughs> when, you, when you delete the thing from the United States that made it righteous, what it looks like is something horrid. If you're in that secular place and you objectively view, objectively quotation marks, view the United States, you're going to find a whole lot of suffering within the United States throughout its history. Of course you are. You're going to, because human beings make up the United States. Suffering exists inside human beings' lives. So what you're going to see is suffering in that system in some way <laughs> because perfection doesn't exist. What do you expect? The United States to just come into being and then all of a sudden all the world's problems are solved? I think that's exactly what some people, a large group of this population believe right now. That's a psychopathy. That's a disconnection with reality because it's impossible. And the dangerous thing we're approaching here, guys, is that psychopathy trying to be enacted in real life. When it doesn't actually come into being, what people resort to is violence and murder. Rioting and destroying, tearing down anarchy itself. Because when your reality doesn't come into being, the reality that you believe is actually true is proven to not be true. What do you do? You take it out on the world and the people that said it wasn't true. This is what we have to watch for. I don't mean to make anybody afraid. I don't mean to add on to the pile of stress that's already existing in all of your lives, right? I do mean to implore you. The reason I bring it up is I implore you to continue the work you're doing. Not only for yourself, but for humanity. You figuring out who you are and doing this work is exactly what humanity needs. It's the only solution. It's the reason we're here and it's the way we go up from here. Nietzsche believed that the, the part of the reason why he declared God dead from my understanding is because Nietzsche believed that it was a necessary evolution of the human being, of society itself at a grander scale, of culture, period, right? That the human being in some ways had... had, had placed God outside of themselves for most of human history. This is why if you look through ancient texts and scriptures and, and if you look through ancient, even like, you know, 
spirituality in general, what you'll find throughout history is that a lot of times you'll have this idea of God, like an, an external God, right? Or you have this idea of multiple gods initially, right? Where like everything in the physical world represented a God in a spiritual world, but it's outside of people. Right? I also believe this is why there's an idea of heaven as being a place and hell being a place external from the world, right? As we, we externalized the idea of God. And that, that, exter, that externalization of God was untrue and thus needed to die, right? But in order for it to die, it required something like a evolution to take place. Intersecularism, right? Uh, Interscientific thought, inter the Enlightenment, all of these things, right? You have you have this new mode of being, this new perspective that starts to gain, and then as it does, it fundamentally is being built as a argument against the old world, the religious world, the spiritual world, the external existence, right? That one of the things religions often teach is truth. But that one of the things the secular worldview brought into being was the ability to demonstrate that there isn't, at least from our abilities that we have now, some guy sitting on a cloud, right? As we go and go to the moon, well, shit, there's no God on that cloud, right? These kind of realizations slowly happen over time as we develop these tools in this specific perspective. And so what that's led is a dis as a dismantling of the institutions, that externalization of God himself. But Nietzsche didn't stop there, which is what, where most people stop. They, they, they stop at like him believing that secularism was the end of humanity. No, 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 no. From my understanding, Nietzsche believed that it was a process that was necessary. It was an evolution of sorts. That what came after secular, the reason for secularism wasn't the end all be all. That, that perspective wasn't, isn't supposed to be the way human beings move forward. That it was something like the necess- it was the thing that was necessary to eliminate the idea of an external God. But we stopped there. And what happened is be, once we eliminated God, we didn't know where to look anymore. And so we started to look in truth. We started to look for something like meaning in the secular perspective itself, right? And so there's this this kind of weird way in which you'll see most of the scientific community or most of the secular community trying to explain away God by looking deeper, 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 or bigger, 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 right? Zoom out or zoom in. That's fundamentally what science is doing, right? And they're saying that because they're not finding proof of God at a small level or a big level, God doesn't exist, period, right? And that the only thing that is true is what we can view with our eyes. But that's a baby with a bathwater problem. We've thrown out meaning in that. We've thrown out... The process in which we have experienced the most upward expansion throughout history. The reason we are here right now as a society in the most peaceful time in history, quotation marks, right? Right now, maybe. I don't know if it's going to be. But the reason we're here isn't because of secularism. Secularism has been on the scene for about 90 years in a global scale, right? Maybe it's less than that. Maybe a little more. I don't know. But it's something like a century, Right? That's something, that's a blip on the human timeline. 
This perspective is very rare and very minuscule if you look at it from, an, from a, a zoomed out place. Most of human existence has been dominated by spiritual and philosophical thought. They go together. It's partially why I've been trying to go through different types of religion. You know, or at least bring in the Eastern religions with the Western religions, because I believe that they're the same fundamental process. All of these are. That's why I've, when I've argued for them, I've told you it doesn't matter what you believe specifically. It's something like the process itself of, of searching for meaning is what the purpose of religion is. Getting people to search for meaning. Now, let me get back to Nietzsche. What he believed, I think, was... And, and like I need to read more on Nietzsche because he has one book. It's his last book. Um, something... It's a very weird name. Um, and when Nietzsche wrote it, he was like... I think he was... Most people objectively think he was crazy because he had... Was it a... He had some kind of infection, right? It was a like chlamydia or something like that that... that went out of control and those kind of things tend to have an effect on your brain, right? But anyway, most people write off this last book um, as kind of the dying thoughts of a madman. But from my understanding, what Nietzsche argued for after secularism was something like a reinvigoration of the truth, the real truth, which is that truth lies internally and that objective reality doesn't exist and that that's the next step of humanity because when we look at our world and we look at how we've had the most upward expansion it's always come from individuals expressing their individuality but that in order to really truly express your individuality you have to connect with the thing inside yourself that brings it into being. We had to bring God from an external place to an internal place. That's the process that's happening right now. I think that's partially what's happening with churches too, why churches are being closed down and stuff because the institution itself, while it may be comforting, isn't necessary. And I think that's being shown to people right now that maybe you feel comfortable or you like going to church, you like receiving the Eucharist or you like going to temple, whatever it is, right? But that because of all these restrictions, because of all the close downs, because it's never happened before and shouldn't have happened, arguably, it's a different conversation, but because of that restriction, because your inability to go and worship at your place of worship, you've been forced to connect internally with the idea of God. And so that if you're, we are all, I think, being asked at a grand scale. It's a fundamental time, a crossroads moment in history where you're being asked, do you want to connect with this or not? And you'll reap what you sow. Do you want to connect with truth, what you truly are, and do you want to bring that into being, all of the sacrifice that entails, or do you want to continue to deny it, to continue to bury your head in the sand, to continue to tell yourself, la, 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 there's only what I see, there's only what I see. Keep telling yourself that. Look at the world right now. How comforted do you feel? You're going to get more of that, because it's going to get more chaotic, folks, I'm telling you right now. We are heading for suffering, something like a bloodletting. I've been saying it for quite a while. You can feel it if you tune into it, right? But what we are headed for is more chaos. So keep looking externally. 
You're going to feel it more and more. You're going to feel more crazy. You're going to feel more ungrounded, more unbounded, more unconfident in the way you view the world. Secularism itself is falling apart at the seams, which is why the idea of truth in news and in politics and anywhere is crumbling. I implore you Find what your version of God is. Otherwise, you are in for some suffering. And I'm not saying that as a threat. If you don't believe me, go on doing what you've been doing. It's no skin off my nose. (laughs) Because what I've said, I believe, is objectively true either way. You have this choice. Turn away from it. Deny it. Tell yourself that it doesn't exist or that the world isn't crumbling. See how sane you feel. (laughs) I think it's in the times of chaos when the cream rises to the top. This is why this is a necessity. This is why this this emphasis is being placed on exactly what I'm talking about. Like I said, I believe you're going to reap what you sow. If you believe that this is all there is, if you believe that there's nothing deeper than what you see with your own eyes, oh my God, that's what you're going to get. Do you really want that? You should ask yourself that question. So if you are with me and you have made a choice to walk that line in whatever version of reality, in whatever your version of it is, then I applaud you. You should applaud yourself each and every day you wake up and choose to be that thing and choose to search for your meaning and choose to connect with whatever your idea of God is, individuality inside of you, to search for your own truth I applaud you because in today's world that is rare you are rare you're the cream you feel it that pride you can feel in yourself not because of some weird external circumstance. Not because you won a lottery or because your hair looks on fleek today or whatever the fuck it is, right? No, no, no. Because you chose to be something that's difficult. That's why you're the cream. As soon as you stop choosing that, you fall right back into the masses. The writhing masses. Rife with suffering and pain. It's your choice. Stay on that path, folks. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unfounded Podcast. I like this kind of, uh, this new format I'm going with, with the, the, the quotations first. I, let me know what you guys think. I want to, like I said, keep it malleable. So if you have some ideas for how I could restructure this a little bit or maybe incorporate, I really want to incorporate other people in this conversation on the show. I do want to bring other people that maybe have a different perspective than me on the show at some point. But, um, it is hard to get people to come on a show, right? And unless you get to a certain point, 
uh, where it's viewed as something tangible. Um, I'm getting there slowly, and it's all thanks to your support and your help. I thank you for listening to me. Um, and I hope that you're getting as much out of it as I am. And like I said, I applaud you for being the thing that we need. Thank you. Till next time. Bye-bye, guys. Stay strong. Stay strong.